you know, and he changed the world. Well, not really. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation, bringing on fans and critics alike to talk about a film that, that, they, that they really want to talk about. Something, there's something that they connect with or something they really remember that resonates with them. And so this episode, uh, I actually put a call out on uh, Twitter saying, hey, we've already covered some great films in 1999, The Matrix, American Beauty, Office Space, and what else should we talk about? And Jamie Williams of uh, Think McFly Think, one of the founders of that site. He responded with this, the film that we'll talk about this episode, which we'll, we'll reveal in a minute. But Jamie, welcome to the show. Hello, sir. How are you? Good, good. Happy to have you on. So we were talking a little bit before I hit record uh, about 1999 and what a pivotal year this was for movies. I mean, some of the films that I mentioned uh, already, and then you have huge box office hits like The Sixth Sense that also came out the same year, uh, films like uh, Being John Malkovich. So what is it about 1999 that you think like crystallizes that as one of the, one of the best years in, in cinema? Well, for me, I, mean, I can only speak from my perspective. I was 15, and that was the year when I'm trying to get... I'm, I'm full-fledged in the movies. It's that case where... And this is one of those things that like people don't remember now is like pre Columbine, it was a lot easier to get into an R rated movie because I had no problem getting into the matrix opening weekend. And, uh, but you know, when that tragedy happened two weeks later, it became impossible. And I remember that fall trying to get into sleepy hollow in the exact same theater, my home theater, exact same manager who I'm friends with to this day, even though I don't live there anymore. Um, I couldn't get in and he specifically told me you're too young. Sorry. <laughs> You know, that's just it's just a different time now. Uh, it, it's I think 1999 might have been the last uh, truly spectacular year at the movies. We've had some really solid ones, even some great ones, but like a spectacular with a capital S year. I, I can't think of another one. 2004 was pretty great. That might have been the closest one. We just had one recently in 2015 where at the end of the year we were just like naming all these amazing movies. And then, of course, fucking spotlight wins, whatever. Um, but yeah, 1999, man, it's just it's. It, maybe it's not nostalgia because the movie I picked kind of doesn't help to nostalgia, frankly. No, and and that was part of why I thought your response to to my tweet was so interesting because this is a film that that people don't really talk about that much, unfortunately. And yeah, yeah, as far as Columbine and its impact on cinemas, I think a lot of people forget that The Matrix came out. So like the, the the window between the Matrix coming out and the Columbine was so small that it was, it was two weeks. just two, it was weeks. Like two weeks and they were, and of course the Matrix kind of bore the brunt of of supposedly being the influence that whatever that had as far as the trench coats and all of that and the lobby scene uh, from that film that was part of the controversy surrounding it I think it, it, dur- during its theatrical run but um, yeah there's there's so many that that are, we talk about I mean Iron Giant I just thought of is also ninety nine like there's a gr- lot of great movies across all genres in 99 and, and phantom menace and phantom menace i mean like you know we, we, we're we're recording this uh the monday after avengers endgame opened and you know had that massive opening weekend which i don't think will ever be topped however i'm going to be honest with you the hype of the phantom menace will never be matched you cannot kids today and i know i i just turned 35 like i sound like an old geezer you cannot fathom what it was like leading up to the release of Phantom Menace, that entire 
nine window from the moment that first teaser hit in front of a bug's life, or no, in front of Meet Joe Black, actually, in November of 1998 till the opening in May of 99. You cannot match that. No, I, uh, it's, it's probably responsible for most of Meet Joe Black's box office now that you mentioned that. Um, but I, I, yeah. I, I actually, I'm turn, I turned 36 in a couple months, so I was in high school when Phantom Menace came out. So I, I remember everybody, like, the next, day, the next Monday after the opening weekend at school, everybody would be like, oh my god, did you see Star Wars? And sort of the, the impact that that had having a new Star Wars movie for the first time in 16 years, the first time in, in our lifetime. Uh, you know, and and the the all the expectations that went into it, and how everybody was praising it initially, and then since then, oh, oh they loved been, initially. They loved it initially. Apart. It took. It was about halfway through the summer when the tide turned. It was not immediate. When I hear people, I've heard fellow pundits of ours who say, "I knew from the start." I honestly will say to their face, "Bullshit." It was praised <laughs> up front. The the reception at the time was, "No, it's not Star Wars. No, it's not Empire, but it's better than Jedi." That was the that was the initial reaction. I remember this, yeah. and I like Phantom Menace. I still like Phantom Menace. I get the prequels; they're not great, but I got to tell you, we're not talking about them. And you can cut this if you want to, uh, but I'm not going to say I prefer them to the Disney era of Star Wars. But at least there's more original. There was more originality going on with those movies because George Lucas knew don't play the fan service that gets you that gets you nowhere. That was his reaction when he first saw it. He first saw. Uh, Force Awakens, and the internet lost their shit and attacked him because he said he thought, I liked it, the actors were pretty good, but it's really fan service All they do is retread the old movies, and they lost their shit. And then it comes out, and guess what? They're like, well, he was right. I say this as someone who did like Force Awakens. Right. Recently. I I uh, I think I mean I have conflicted thoughts on on the prequels. We're actually I'm actually going to be doing an episode on uh, actually I'm going to be doing episodes on pretty much the entire saga throughout the rest of this year. There's there's a lot to dig into there because I I mean having grown up with that initial response, like I, I there are elements of the prequels that I love, and there are elements you know some of the acting obviously and things like that that are not so great. Um, but I I, st- I mean I still I still think Revenge of the Sith is is pretty solid and I actually kind of prefer that to Return of the Jedi which I know is a, is a controversial opinion um, that, was, that, was, that was the other thing is every time a new movie has been here since Phantom Menace the reaction has always been it's the best one since Jedi or the best one since Empire like we heard that was Last Jedi I, I did not like Last Jedi um, that was that's a separate podcast but right. I, mean, I, I, I it was a case where I didn't like it my, my lovely love wife Anna and I saw it opening day with a packed audience in the state capital of Louisiana, a very meat and potatoes audience, it was packed. They hated it. And I didn't like it. And I, you know what? Here's the thing. I haven't seen it since. So the movie that we're harping on, it amazes me that this is the hill that people want to die on. That and like the Ghostbusters reboots. Like these are the movies that you want to, want to, you want to like fight over. Like I would rather fight over something else, like a, a better, a real movie. No offense. Like those aren't real movies. Like I'd rather debate over, you know, like Solo or, you know, whether or not that's pornography or not. Like, I would rather have a real debate. Maybe even this movie we're going to talk about, you know, or The Matrix. Let's talk about, you know, whether or not that movie did influence Columbine. Let's have real conversations. But, I don't know. 
there's a lot of division right now. Uh, and I mean, in, in as far as the cinema conversation, like that's and that's part of why I like this having this podcast because I bring different people on to talk about different films. So we're not just talking about Marvel, DC, Star Wars every single episode because that gets monotonous. And it just God reaches bless. a certain point where everyone, you know, you like what you like, you either, you know, and if you, and if you don't agree with me, then that's fine, whatever, you, you know. Just I love that. Live your life. It's not a big deal. But everybody I feels love, like I <laughs> love nothing more than hearing a different point of view. Right. Okay? Exactly. My favorite movie of all time. It goes down to three movies, but at the end of the day, it's going to be John Borman's Excalibur. And if someone said, "I hate that piece of shit," I bet like, awesome. Why? Why not? Why do you hate it? I, I'm curious. What? What don't you like about it? Like I don't get all defensive because it's not the movie's never going to change. You know, it's always going to be the same movie. I think that should be anyone's response. And I think movies uh, talk to everybody reacts to a movie differently. So it's just the, I, I, with this show, at least I try and celebrate that rather than be like, well, oh, that's not the correct opinion, which is an oxymoron in and of itself. Sure. But yeah, so 1999, I think we can agree that that was a, a very pivotal year in cinema. And unfortunately, of the many films that we're still talking about from that year, one that we're not talking about <laughs> is this one, which isn't a good does kind of a good segue into this. So let's listen to a little bit of the trailer for the film we're going to talk about today, Man on the Moon. Hello, I am Andy. I want to be the biggest star in the world. Your act is like amateur hour. I'm not like everybody else. I really like what you did out there. I'm not a comedian. I don't want to go for cheap laughs. You jerk! What's wrong with this guy? They detest you. That means we're a success. 40 million people are watching you every week. Party time for latka. Some of us at Saturday Night Live think Andy Kaufman's a comic genius. Thank you very much. You just don't respect anything. You said some pretty inflammatory things. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've always got to be one step ahead of them. This guy is so obnoxious. It's good old-fashioned entertainment, George. Is Andy Kaufman crazy? I'm just acting crazy. I'm going to do it again and again and again and again and again and again and again. So that was a little bit of the trailer for Man on the Moon from director Milos Forman. So, Jamie, why did you uh, why did you want to talk about this particular movie? Like what what, what is your experience seeing it? Were you uh, were you a big Jim Carrey fan uh, around this around this time? I was a big fan of Jim Carrey. I mean, but it was it was one of those things that it all sort of came together at once um, going into that Christmas of 1999. Uh, and I actually made the mistake of not researching the box office. I'm going off memory here. That was the big one going into that Christmas in terms of the awards hype. Everyone thought because of the pedigree of Milos Foreman, who had won several people Academy Awards, two for himself, no less, um, the subject matter, the advanced uh, quote-unquote buzz carries performance. Um, every The talk was about this, about Man on the Moon. And something about it, like I saw the trailer and I loved it. I was like, I can't wait to see this movie. And I remember it said my obsession into the Andy Kaufman lore, which kind of died out after about two years or so. But I remember the pre-release hype they had, like specials on MSNBC. They had a show called Time and Again and Headliners and Legends. They did one on uh, one of those. They did on Andy Kaufman using old clips. Uh, there was an each Hollywood story Andy Kaufman, which actually predated the production of this movie, so it was I'd already seen it. And they were playing, you know, Taxi reruns uh, ad ad nauseum on Nick at Night. And I remember watching like the Mighty Mouse clip with my father 
And he chuckled. He laughed. He thought it was very funny. And it's one of those things where a lot of what we do, not everybody, but a lot of us, and I'm one of them, you really get it from your parents. You want to have a bonding experience with your family, with your dad or your mom. And for me, it was that it was the Mighty Mouse moment where he just my dad started chuckling endlessly. And my dad started watching Taxi and it got me into the Lord. And also the big thing was the obsession I've had up, up until recently was my it got me into R.E.M. Because I remember hearing the song at the end of the trailer going, what is that song? And someone told me, oh, that's from a band called R.E.M. And I remember specifically buying the soundtrack first. So I had not seen the movie. I'd read the reviews. And Entertainment Weekly actually picked it as the best movie of 1999. I bought that year-end issue, which I used to look forward to those religiously as a kid. And, I, and when you look back in 1999 as a year, as you said earlier, sir, you're like, wow, that's the movie they picked. Which is, There's actually two critics. There's Owen Gleiberman and Lisa Schwarzman. Excuse me. And I believe Mr. Gleiberman picked A Man on the Moon as the number one movie of the year. Which, again, it's all about taste. It's not a wrong opinion or a right opinion. Right, but it got me into like, wow, this is the movie, and like I remember the I I visually have it in my burned in my head, the artwork they used in the article. I remember, and we'll get into this later, um, presumably is like the day after the Academy Award nominations were announced, they had a picture of Carrie from Man on the Moon. I think it's the Mighty Mouse moment recreated, and it had it was New York Post and had a giant bold bold letters on the headline, robbed. He was such a consensus to get that Academy, not just a nomination, but an Oscar. They thought like, he's going to win straight up. Like there had been so much talk about how possessive in which they certainly downplayed in the press at the time, how he really just got inhabited with his character and overtly so. And I have strangers on that too. Um, but so I waited six months. I, I missed the theatrical release because the movie bombed. It completely bombed. It did not get any kind of uh, awards. Uh, it did not get the attraction that we thought it would. It came and went after after the holidays, and I got the the I uh, first saw the VHS, and then like a little bit later the DVD. Back when DVD was like just getting into the market, and I loved it. It, it just I, I absolutely loved it. It's funny, and I, I started like I just got into it all. It, it influenced a movie that I I myself still want to make one day about Andy Kaufman that I won't reveal here because if I give it away, it'll never get made. That's my attitude about it. So um, it, it, I just I got really impreg impregnated with the the lore of Andy Kaufman and all this stuff. It's funny that I rewatched for this podcast. I haven't seen it since two thousand, since early two thousand, maybe late two, around two thousand one. Right. The DVD has been collecting dust in various forms of homes for years since my parents. I moved away. My parents moved to Florida. They saved up all my DVDs, which I had boxes and boxes of, and I now have back. And I had to go digging for the DVD. And I watched and I realized that the, the tropes of the movie, it's everything that I've come to hate. I hate oh, biopics. Okay. Yeah. I think now no movie is easy to make. Every movie is hard. But if there's any movie that, in my opinion, is easy to make, it's going to be a biopic. Oh, yeah. Because the st structure is so there. And we've seen so many examples. Case in point is a $900 million grossing Academy Award winning blockbuster that came out last fall called Bohemian Rhapsody. Yep. That was instantly the worst movie I saw last year. <laughs> I hated it. I despised that movie. But I was, I remember thinking, this is, this is like every, this is, this is what Walk the Line was making fun of. Right. Walk the Line was not just making fun of these kind of, I mean, it was making fun of all of them. You could, you could insert Man on the Moon into that equation. Any biopic. It's so lazily put together. And yet, it's not nostalgia talking because my, the, the flaws in that movie still sting even harder 
as a 35-year-old as opposed to seeing it as a 16-year-old, I still liked it. And a lot of that is because Jim Carrey's performance. Yeah. But it's that Yang thing that we'll get to later about what he put people through for the sake of art. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We'll, we'll definitely get to that. No, it sounds like you and I had very similar lives in 1999. Cause well, for, for First of all, I was a, a huge fan of Jim Carrey. When I did, when I rebranded this podcast with the specific focus of bringing in different guests to talk about different movies, the first one I talked about was uh, I was actually the subject of it of the episode more or less, and I chose to talk about Ace Ventura: Pet Detective because that was a huge, big like <laughs> that was a big formative movie for me as a, as a child. That and The Mask and uh, Dumb and Dumber, not so not as much, but. Um, and then like liar liar and all that stuff. So I was fully in the bag for for anything Jim Carrey in this at this point in the nineties, and this was the year after he got the Golden Globe for Truman Show, which a lot of people think he should have been nominated for that as well. So I remember really following all of that and hoping he was going to get a nomination for this. And of course, I wasn't super I wasn't super uh, well versed on Andy Kaufman at this point either because that was obviously before our time. Uh, though I was aware of Taxi and things like that, and I was reading Entertainment Weekly. That's what I'm saying. We were very very much in the same in the same i think i might still have some of those year-end issues when they were talking about the best of uh every year so yeah yeah me too those are great and then it came out december 22nd 1999 and i actually brought up the box office mojo it only made 34 million uh domestically and only like additional 12 uh, overseas for with a budget of 82 million apparently and i'm sure most a lot of that yeah that was a paint a lot of people those paying some top talent Carey, DeVito's producing fee, Niels mm-hmm. Foreman, who was a gun for hire. Um, you know, uh, Larry Karaszewski and Sky Alexander wrote it. They they were coming very hot off of People versus Larry Flint, which this turned out to be a reunion. And it could have been even more when you hear the stories about how Ed Norton was kind of the guy they really wanted. That would have been interesting. The thing about it is that I, when I think back in the movie and I rewatched it, it, came, it dawned on me that it's just I really respect Niels Foreman. And he is an honest to God, great with a capital G director. He was the wrong guy for Man on the Moon because he, they said he was a gun. Bob Zamuda said he was a gun for hire. He was brought in, you know, early on, but the movie was in development. They were already writing it and they brought him on. He was not there from the start and he just seems like the wrong guy. And I'm not, and I'm even thinking in the back of my mind who circa 1998, 99 could have taken that job. And I sit there going, and it's a terrible choice, but David, David Lynch. That would have been, yeah. Yeah, that would have made more sense because it feels like they brought Milos Forman into this because of his Oscar pedigree, thinking, oh, this will be a huge Oscar player with him on, you know, on a, a biopic of a noted comedian. But yeah, it doesn't really feel like necessarily the best fit of, of director and material. It, it didn't feel like his, I didn't feel his stamp at all. It just didn't feel distinguishedly him. And to hear the, how the casting thing went on, which is basically he could not make up his mind. And, you know, I mean, you know, if you are, I've made short films, I think we all have, you have to be very committed and you are the ultimate decider is the director. You are in charge for a reason. And if you can't make up your mind who you're going to cast in the lead role, I think that's very, uh, it's very troubling. And the story goes that he could not decide between Jim Carrey and Ed Norton, even though he really liked Ed Norton, thought his, the, they were the only two actors who were willing to screen test. That was his way of trying to get out of trouble with all the other actors in Hollywood who, openly said to him, I want to play Andy Kaufman. I'm the guy. He came up with the scheme supposedly, okay, submit a screen tip. And nobody did except for Jim Carrey and Ed Norton. They were the only two guys who were, who were 
um, secure enough in their own acting abilities to say, fuck it, I'll make a screen test. And he still couldn't make up his mind. And basically let the studio decide. Who do you think the studio's going to pick? Yeah, the $20 exactly. million dollar actor <laughs> or the character actor who's just at this point, just got a, a surprise for nomination, which by the way, I would put dollars to donuts. Ed Norton's nomination for American History X is the performance that bumped Jim Carrey out of getting nominated for Truman Show. I can't prove that. I, that's my theory. That's no, that makes sense. That makes sense. American History so, X does feel like who are we gonna? Yeah, who, who are we gonna pick? A studio. And again, I can I I can understand the executive's thought process. I get it. Let's go with the sure bet because this is a weird subject matter. Coffin's been dead for at this point fifteen years. No one remembers him. Obviously, we're going to do the hype factor and bring him back into the eye. But it's easier with Jim Carrey, who is more accessible. And the only thing people knew Ed Norton for at this point was Primal Fear. Yeah, Primal Fear and... Well, Fight Club yeah. was the same year, but I don't... like Not when they were casting it. That hadn't been released yet, so... Hadn't been released yet. Yeah, I think he had just finished Fight Club. He had, such, he had a lot of clout on that movie, more so than even David Venture. Because Venture was coming off the game, which is a giant bomb. Mm-hmm. So the attitude was, well, he's done. And basically, uh, Norton had the clout because of American History X. And, you know, Brad Pitt was coming off a bomb, too. Everyone forgets. Like, he had a period in the late 90s where Brad was just delivering one bomb after another, including the aforementioned uh, Meet Joe Black. And Ed Norton actually basically somehow, because he was, you know, all the, you know, I remember why, because he had basically taken over American History X in post-production. So they allowed him to have final cut, and he said, no, pass it. That's the story I heard, hmm. and I'm, I'm going to believe it. Well, that just sounds crazy. With, with everything we've heard, we've, I mean, and that's, that's been the story coming out of multiple Edward Norton productions that he's really hands-on and has a tendency to want to just redo things. I mean, that's probably that's largely why it seems like he's not in the Marvel Cinematic Universe after one film. Well... He's not in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I know this. I heard from this. Marvel had enough of his nonsense. Yeah. He refused to promote. He refused to promote the Hulk. Mm-hmm. Same summer as Iron Man, when Robert Downey Jr. was shaking every hand and kissing every baby. He was running for office practically, basically. And yeah. Norton is refusing to sell the movie. So they were quickly like, "My." The story I heard is that one of the first decisions made on the Avengers when they settled on Whedon. Even before they settled on Wheaton, they said, he's not coming back. He is fired. So let's start. Once we get a director, we will start thinking about who is going to play Bruce Banner now. That's the story I heard. Yeah, it's well, now we're really digressing. But yeah, it's uh, that early time for the MCU. They were obviously with Terrence Howard also switching out. They were they had they became much more selective in who they were going to put in these roles that people were going to play for a decade and, 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 you know, and more at this point. So, uh, getting back on track to man on the moon, do you, so what do you think about, I guess it it makes more sense to just, let's just talk about Jim Carrey. This feels like it should just be a larger discussion on the movie, but also Jim Carrey's performance. And then that can kind of, uh, loop in, uh, with Jim and Andy that I know we wanted to talk about that documentary film as well, which what's weird I think that the the performance is still dynamite. Like I can't take Absolutely. my head off of how good he is in that role. I mean, there's been there's a really funny YouTube video saying Jim Carrey's an asshole that does a that lays a very good argument as to why he was wrong for Andy Kaufman about how in you know when you do a side by side comparison to again the Mighty Mouse bit, uh, Andy Kaufman played the role very straight. 
he's not making many facial gestures. And yet you look at Jim Carrey's recreation of it and he's got the rubber face and he's, when he's doing here, I come, you know, it's like, he's just going all out with the facial expressions. And that's the one moment in man, the moon where you sort of see Jim Carrey kind of like oozing out of that performance, like Jim Carrey in the same way that in the Truman show, the one moment you can see Jim Carrey kind of squeaking out is during the scene when uh, he's in the, in the car with his quote unquote wife. I knew exactly. I knew exactly what scene you were going to reference. I was, I was waiting for it. That's the moment. And it was almost like Peter Weir was like, all right, I have to put one of these in because there's so many takes. He probably did that for every scene, at least one take where he let his, his isms seep through. And that, that was the one moment where you could sort of justify it because he is losing his mind. Right. But, you know, that's the moment, man, the moon, where you sort of see Jim Carrey. It's weird because after I first saw it as a kid, I then looked at the I, – I was so hypnotized by Jim Carrey's Andy Kaufman that I had to re- remind myself, like, he doesn't look a thing like Andy Kaufman. You know, this is the real Andy Kaufman who is more – who looks more like an average guy, kind of doughy-faced. He looks like the kind of guy who, as he did in real life, could walk down a street and go unnoticed. I don't feel that way about Jim Carrey. Even in his lesser known days, he, he just stands out. There's something about him. You just look at him. And, you know, I, I, at the time, I thought it was the best performance of his career. And, you know, t- uh, hindsight being what it is in, in additional film work, I would say, well, you know, it's just top three. I, I, can't, I, I can't imagine him ever giving a better performance than Eternal Sunshine Lot was mine. I think I think as far as like dr- like complex performances, as far as you know dramatic performances, I think it's this Eternal Sunshine and and I guess Truman Show. Those are probably his three best uh, kind of most dramatic performances. As far as uh, I mean, that's obviously not taking away the work he does in other like films like Liar Liar, but that's comedic performance. So it feels like a totally different feels like a totally different category. For it, there's, there's a lot more richness to those other three that we mentioned. And I you know I agree with you. I think this is either it, it's certain, maybe not his his best performance, but it's certainly in the conversation. And I think part of that is because of the level of commitment that he brings to the role. I mean, as we see in and in, in Jim and Andy, he completely refused to be called Jim Carrey. He was either Andy or Tony Clifton throughout the entire production. They actually have the same birthday, Andy Kaufman and Jim Carrey, which is crazy. That was weird. That's that's weird. I I I'm, I have mixed feelings about that um, because I, I think you can. You know, his story is that, you know, he was channeling, he was channeled by Andy and that caused him to do these things. And you watch the documentary and you, it's, it's, and I've listened to other interviews with Bob Samuda on other podcasts. And he was very open about saying Jim Carrey was pretty much Jim offset. He was fine. I'm just going to say it right now. I think Jim Carrey was an asshole. I, 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 you know, it, it, the, the movie, the documentary Jim and Andy honestly made me this close to make me retroactively hate Man on the Moon. This close. I'm doing visually with my fingers right now. And it didn't, thank God. But it did make me, frankly, despise Jim Carrey as a person because there is no justification for that kind of thing. And, you know, the, what has been lost in the shuffle of the Andy Kaufman isms over the years and what a trendsetter he was with this kind of performance art was here's the difference. Andy Kaufman let people know who needed to know ahead of time. He didn't just grab anybody. 
he actually orchestrated this stuff very carefully. And he knew because he's a decent human being, they're going to hate me. I can't do this. That's a human. That's a person I can't. So I've got to work this stuff out with him. He was very meticulous. David Letterman always knew what he was going to do. You know, the stuff with Jerry Lawler, which they only actually revealed right before the movie came out because they were actually, to their credit, they were very much keeping that secret even after he died. Mm-hmm. Like Jerry Lawler was always involved. But what you kept constantly hearing was, you know, about the Jim Carrey stuff was Andy was never that way. Jim Carrey was just a jerk. I, the, you know, even like his, again, the justification is how it's possessed by Andy Kaufman, but didn't you see him talking to, the real life Bob Zamuda, if that's the case, then why wasn't he talking to Paul Giamatti that way? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. You see Jim Andy and Paul Giamatti. I don't even think he says a word in the documentary. I don't think he does. He might say, uh, he might say something in there. Um, there's a bit where he's orchestrating a fake fight with an actress playing his father, which is weird, by the way, it's bizarre. And you just see Paul Giamatti sitting there, and he's holding his face, his hand to his mouth, and it's like I'm not saying anything. The best thing to do is to say nothing, because you think he, you know, he's sitting there thinking, "What a fucking weirdo!" Like, what was the point of this? You could have given just a greater performance without doing all this crap, mm-hmm. without the crap about meeting Andy Kaufman's daughter in real life and having a private conversation with her, a, a woman who, by the way, he never got to meet. That's the tragedy. He never was able to find her. He could. It was, you know, people say, well, how couldn't he find her? Well, I mean, it's pre-internet. It's a little easier back back now to find someone. He couldn't have been, even with his success. Uh, having these scenes with his real-life family and having these, these, these like, them loving up on him. I, plus the tone lifting crap. It's creepy. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It really just, it bothers the, I mean, there's literally a moment in the documentary where Milos is begging him, Jim, stop, please. <laughs> I remember stop. that. And Jim Carrey's answer was basically, if you don't let me do it, I'm going to give a shitty performance. Mm. He says this in the documentary. And I will say, of all things, and I look, the documentary is pretty great. I'm not taken away from this. Right. From any of that. I have, I say that I can really miss Jim Carrey for, for doing this, and I stand by what I just said. However, and this is not an oxymoron, what I'm about to say, I also have respect for the man because he had no problem putting this footage out and saying, I did this. I got to hand it to him. That's ballsy, man. I think in a way, this was his way of being like owning up to, to to how much of an asshole he was on the set of this movie and, uh, and putting it out there. And, and, you know, meanwhile, also, kind of illustrating the the meta textualness of of him kind of channel channeling andy and yet there is that difference that you mentioned but he he related to a lot of andy's at least is portrayed in this movie his his drive to to try and you know craft a, a very particular relationship with his audience to feel like he's always on. I mean, you see Jim Carrey throughout pretty much all the nineties into the, probably the early two thousands. And anytime he was on an award show, he was acting out, acting crazy, whatever. And you know that that yeah, was, and, and, of him. yeah, because he had to live up to the image of, he couldn't be, just be a guy. He had to be, you know, the, the rubber face, like Ace Ventura. Yeah. He couldn't just be Jim. Exactly. So the I one, think, the one I the one I remember the most, I think it was the, the Academy Awards of the Golden Globes, this pre-Truman show, and he was making a joke about how they're using dead celebrities to recreate, like, dead, the footage of dead celebrities to sell products at the time. And he said, well, we're going to get to the point where we're going to say, 
who wants cheese? And he bends over and talks out his ass. I do. Like, I, that's the one I remember. I wish I remember where, which it was. That was really funny. It's, it's a weird, it's a weird, it's a weird feeling about that movie. Cause I actually think I heard about Jim and Andy in terms of review. Someone said it was a better Andy Kaufman movie than man on the moon. That's actually kind of true. Yeah. I I, and I like man on the moon. It kind of is actually. But look, there's about Man on the Moon that do work really well outside of Jim Carrey. There are some wonderfully put together scenes. Um, I mentioned the REM score. I mean, the REM, I, their score is pretty good. It's weird that they made that whoever made the decision, hey, let's let them score the movie. It's pretty good. I, again, I had the soundtrack. I remember those music cues very vividly. Uh, I, in fact, I had a bit. I there's a bit in the soundtrack where Michael Stipe, uh, uh, Andy, quote unquote, and Tony Clifton sing uh, "It's a Friendly World," which is in which is in the movie, like them singing that at his funeral. But you know, it's not in the actual movie. But I remember that bit. I remember, in fact, I re-listed on YouTube uh, two days ago before this recording. It brought back all the memories of being fifteen and sixteen. Like, oh my god, I used to listen to this all the time, and realizing how much older I am. You know, there's the whole boy pride wolf narrative, which is all throughout the movie. Which is again. In real life, that did not happen. I, I know they're going to make changes for dramatic effect, what really happened, as opposed to what didn't for in a movie. In real life, his family always knew what he was doing. You know, in the movie, it suggests his family never really knew what he was doing. Uh, he, they knew the whole time. They always knew, oh, that's just Andy being silly. We'll go along with it. But he always told his mom, dad, I'm going to be wrestling. I'm going to break my neck. Don't be worried. You know, they, they, you show him, they show him a lot like wrapping people into his, his, his pranks, usually Bob or, or, you know, Jerry Lawler, things like that. But it did for a, unlike a traditional biopic, his family is really only shown like small spurts. And I like that, uh, the fact that the film directly references exactly what you said that Andy starts the movie in character doing his, his foreign man character. That was great. That which, was great. Oh, I love that. So that's one of the things I remember that's the most great. about this. Like, I remember the opening because it's like, so I, I had them take out all of the baloney and all of the stuff that they added in to dramatize my story. Basically. In fact, this is the end of the movie and then runs the credits and everything. All that we're like already acknowledging, Hey, this is not going to be exact. This is not a documentary about, Andy Kaufman, this is a dramatization, so we're going to make changes along the way, so don't give us too much shit about that. And acknowledging that up front, I think, was was a really kind of smart uh, and clever way to do it, and framing it sort of as an Andy Kaufman-esque prank just right from the big, from the get-go. Yeah, and then wrapping around to it being, I, I, one presumes the video that they're watching at his funeral. That, mm-hmm. That's what they were watching. Right. Wouldn't surprise me, because we don't know the details. But... That's another fascinating thing. Like the reveal of, you know, like, I mean, it's very touching. Like I will admit it is very touching. The reveal at the end when like he's been had, he got the last joke. The last joke was on him, Mm -hmm. you know, about the, uh, the cancer tumor, you know, being taken out of him. And then, you know, just fades in and like, there's this corpse. It's like, it's very, very moving. I mean, there's the movie, there's the movie conventions that definitely annoyed me at the time and still annoy me now. Like everyone was at his funeral including the people who he was an ass to again, within the movie context in real life, I can imagine like Jerry Lawler. I don't even know if Jerry Lawler was there. I supposedly the taxi cast was not at his funeral and Bob Zamuda. And you can really have to put an asterisk there because Zamuda, God love him has been feeding into the myth of Andy Kaufman in the now 35 years since he died. And some of the things he says like crap, 
You're just like, dude, this is nonsense. There have been people who, other people who come out, like even with the Tony Clifton stuff, he tell people all the time, hey, there, I, there's an interview with, I think it's Sam Simon who wrote for Taxi and famously made, uh, developed The Simpsons and said that literally Andy was in Tony Clifton outfit and told him, don't worry, it's me. Like the movie never said that. Like the movie just assumes that it's all, there were things I didn't like about the movie. Um, I actually think the last shot kind of bothered me the more I think about it because it tries to play into the now legendary, maybe he's not really dead. Which sort of they attitude. reference it a few times throughout the movie. He's like, short of like, I don't know, faking my own death. What could I do? Right. And they, they, they mentioned, I think two or three times throughout the course of the movie, kind of floating that idea out there and planting that seed for that sort of, I, I guess, uh, you know, open-ended question mark of an ending. Well, it's weird to me because the movie in the last act, 20 minutes, goes out of its way to say he has cancer. This is for real. It turns into the boy who cried wolf. And we go through everything. We go through all the stuff with can- the, 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 um, all the chemo stuff. He's dead. Oh, by the way, maybe he's not really dead. The last right. two seconds. Right. That annoyed me. I was like, you need to stick the landing. You need to really effectively plant those seeds if you're going to play that card, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, again, like, I, I didn't mind that they moved stuff around in real life. I knew even as a 15-year-old that the famous Carnegie Hall performance was something he did actually early into his career. In fact, that got him noticed at the time. That's right when Taxi took off. Uh, I am amused by the film's notion that Taxi was a crap show, when in fact Taxi was, at the time, one of the most critically acclaimed shows that ever aired on television. Right. It was a big hit for, like, the first two seasons, and it kind of petered out, but it was like it kept winning every year. It was, I think it was one of those shows that kept winning all the time at the Emmys. Like every year it kept winning or was nominated all the time. But like, you know, you listen to the movie, it's like, oh, it's just crap sitcom that he just appeared on. He, he didn't really, I think he did in real life, didn't like working on the show. So that might, cause in, oh, he's, we're seeing from his eyes that, that it's a, that it's a crap show. I, I think in real life, it definitely was true that he had to be talked into it. But as it, as is the case, a lot of talent has to be talking to things. You know, people forget that Bill Murray had to be talked into doing Ghostbusters. He only did Ghostbusters for two reasons. One, the money. And two, if they, Columbia said, if you make this movie, we will do the razor's edge. And that literally was his attitude. So like he had an, I don't give a shit attitude in Ghostbusters, which helped the character. Yet it was just a, it was just like I'm getting to make the movie I really want to make afterwards, so I don't give a shit what I do in this take. And yet that helped perfect Peter Bankman. So it sort of was a happy right. accident. Yeah. But uh, you know, I, I think Coffin was at peace with the show in real life. But I've always been fascinated by what the actors on Taxi thought of him because it must be a weird feeling to sit there and recreate moments of the show from. At this point, 20 years ago, circa 1998 or 99, early 99 when they're shooting it, how like how the movie makes it's actually I'm laughing thinking about this how the movie makes no attempt at making the some of the subject matters age appropriate. Like okay, Lauren Michaels was not the executive producer of Saturday Night Live during the famous vote out of Andy Kaufman. That was the uh, highly disliked, debatable Dick Ebersol who actually did that. But yet, the movie says Lauren Michaels. That's not the issue. That's the movie logic. And also, they needed to get Lauren Michaels okay on all this stuff because you know you're 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 doing the name of Saturday Night Live. You got to get the okay. That's fine. What makes me laugh at the movie is the fact that Lauren Michaels just doesn't age in the movie. He's just like that's how Lauren Michaels looked in 1999, <laughs> and they just said fuck it. He just looks that way. Yeah. Especially with David. Much. Especially with David Letterman. 
apparently they tried to do a makeup on him, and David Letterman was like, I will do the movie because I love Andy, but you are not coming near me with makeup. I am going to look how I look now. <laughs> I don't care. And no, no one seen here back then. So I always laugh at stuff like that. There's a few, one or two others. Also, the taxi cast, they look visibly older. The only one who looks the same, ironically enough, is uh, Christopher Lloyd. He just looks like if you put him in the shots he's in in Man on the Moon next to him in, from 78 to 1982, I would argue he probably looks very close. Yeah. As opposed to great, the, the great Judd Hirsch, who, you know, I love Judd Hirsch. He's a fabulous actor. But, yeah, he's older. <laughs> Come on. He just doesn't look anything the same. Come on. Well, and then you have the fact that Danny DeVito, who was in the cast of Taxi, playing uh, playing an actual character in this movie, which which is... Or Shapiro. Yeah, yeah. which is also uh, complicating the Taxi cast <laughs> appearance part of it as well. Which they said they try, they considered it early on, and the feeling was this is not a Peter Sellers movie, so let's not bring attention to it. And I get that. Um, so that's fine. I, I, well, I mean, Peter Sellers in the 60s, I guess it's 99, you'd say an Eddie Murphy movie. Right. I guess that, there you go. he was the only one doing it at the time. So, you know, that's a decision that I get. Now, according to Bob, I think I'm, they were not at the funeral. So it's weird that like they're sitting there. Like when I see the reaction shots of them, it's weird. Like, what are they thinking when they're doing this shot? And the, uh, the one that always to me when I rewatched the movie was Carol Kane is like, yes. she just falls. Yeah. And that's like for a second. And I feel like that's all they got out of her. And that looked genuine. Everyone like, you know, Dan, Christopher Lloyd looks out of like, he looks spaced out. Like he looks like he's, you know, playing Reverend Jim again in that moment at the funeral. And, you know, but she just, she actually lost it. Absolutely lost. I'm like, that doesn't look fake to me. That looks real. Yeah, there's so many. That's the thing. This is there's so many levels to Jim playing Andy, recreating things with the actual people who had this contentious relationship with Andy, presumably, and uh, according to the movie again, and then the people on set of this movie who have this relationship with Jim, who's supposedly channeling Andy. It's just really, it gets really convoluted. But then the big question for this movie that I find interesting is, and George Shapiro even says this to Andy at one point, who are you trying to entertain the audience or yourself? And it's like, he's, he's trying, he's trying to come up with this new form of comedy basically for, for the time that isn't, isn't particularly accessible to the mainstream audience that knows him from, from taxi. So I found that, that interesting that him trying to, to find out how to channel that kind of manic energy and, and, sort of trick the audience, but actually have them love him for it. And, and I think that the whole film is really his journey of trying to figure that out. And that's part of why I think it's, it is kind of falling in line with a lot of the biopic tropes, but it also sheds a lot of the excess things that you would see in a normal biopic. Like we breeze pretty much right past his childhood, except for one scene. Oh God. And then, and then later on when his whole, the, the Carnegie Hall thing is, is framed as basically him finding a way to, to be himself and also receive the audience love for it, you know, with bringing on the Mormon, uh, tabernacle choir and bringing Santa Claus. And then he has the woman figure debt like that. That stuff was all literally done, including Bob Zamuda dressed as a referee woman, like quote, uh, dying and then being resurrected. the, taking everyone out for milk and cookies. Uh, that all was what he did in like 1979. So it was right at the 
peak of taxi success and really his peak as a performer. I mean, obviously they're not going to go into, I mean, I'm sure that I'd love to see the deleted scene. That's not on the DVD of where they, they go through heartbeats, you know, let's talk, or uh, what was that movie? Uh, in God, we trust his appearances in those movies. There was a brief period where they obviously tried to make Andy Kaufman to a movie star that just did not work. Right. And then none of that's in the movie. They have to pick and choose. I mean, I think the big thing that I don't like about the movie is and it's 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 a conundrum of biopics biopics excuse me is the notion of mythologizing the character mm-hmm. you know like that was my issue you know you look at the Steve Jobs movie that's completely like just like there's so many silly lines in the in that movie uh, and like you building up these characters to be bigger impacts in the world than they really were no Andy Kaufman at that time period was a guy who was in a hit sitcom that people really liked. And then he started doing these other things that people scratch their head and go, what the fuck is he doing? And some people thought, oh, I get it. He's, he's doing this weird thing. It's really funny. I get it. And other people, it was, it was 50-50, as they say in the movie. Some people think he's a genius. Some people think he's not funny anymore. That was the attitude at the time. Well, he didn't really, his influence did not come till many years later after he died, which would have been something nice to put into the movie. But, I mean, even in 1999, who would have taken on the throne of what Andy Kaufman did? I guess... Actually, I just now realized this as I'm saying this, and which is another date and answer. I guess you'd say Tom Green? Question mark. Yeah, maybe. Like, you remember him? Oh yeah. You know, I, I mean, that was he was huge in '99, and he was doing the Andy Kaufman thing. A year later, not so much. But in that moment, he's this weird guy from Canada who's doing pulling these stunts on regular people, usually in New York City, and you don't know if you're in on it. Is this an act? Is this real? Are the people in on it? Are they not? And then for a while, I guess you'd say Josh Baron Cohen would be famous. Yeah, I was just thinking of that. I think there's an also there's also maybe an alternate interpretation of this at the end of this movie too. Where yes, there's the is he still alive? But also, if it's not Bob Zemuda playing Tony Clifton, you assume that it's obviously someone else, and that maybe maybe on. that's yeah that he lives on sort of his legacy, his influence is it's maybe starting small uh, and then trickling out from there to the point that we're now watching a, a film about his life. And, and I think that I that's, hope that's what it means. Yeah, I, I, like it could, I think it could go works. either way. It's, yeah, yeah. There's a certain murkiness with it. That's they're clearly they were trying to have you like, oh, what do you think that means? Do you think is, is he still walking honestly, amongst us? <laughs> honestly, that feels like a reshoot. And I don't know if it was or wasn't. I have a feeling that that was not the original ending and that they had another ending lined up and that there was a feeling that we should probably end this on a maybe not a upper note but they had a different kind of way of ending the movie. Mm-hmm. That's my interpretation because honestly, and I, I thought about this while I was rewatching it. Um, when he says goodbye to the audience, I feel like that was supposed to be the ending. Maybe yeah. it wasn't maybe when he, it, because it wraps around those two moments with, you know, the fake movie, black and white, you know, yes, it is a friendly world. Thank you for all living in such a wonderful world and goodbye credits. I feel like that. I mean, and I can't prove this. I don't know this. I feel like that was supposed to be the ending. I actually think that would have been a much stronger ending in a way. Yeah. And then you've already sort of learned to like the guy. You're going through this notions. Like, I don't know. You don't know what's going on. You don't know how you feel about the guy as a view watch the movie. And yet your heart starts to go out to him. I, I think the most moving moment, I, I tell you a moving moment, the most moving moment in the movie is when he calls his father. They're launching the last uh, episode and he just sits there. He kind of gets his moment. He calls his dad up and just the, and like, I, I get a little teary eyed thinking about it. I'm a big cry during movies. And he just says, dad, that got to me. Like, that's like, that's the moment you feel like, oh man, like what? Oh, 
that's kind of the moment for me that one that for me that makes that wins me over. It's there's a lot of there's a lot of great. Um, I feel like a lot aside from moments like that. I feel like a lot of the stuff with his personal life, maybe like the the romantic subplot with uh, Lynn, played by Courtney Love. Uh, I don't feel. I feel like those are sort of some of the shaggier parts of the movie. I feel like that's more of the. On. Yeah, I feel like that's more of the the biopic kind of uh, you know checking the boxes of what the genre requires as far as yeah because yeah, the real story is as we were saying is him his relationship between him and the audience not his relationship between him and and the woman he happened to be dating and i don't even know but in, how, in real life they did not they did not date that long apparently right like i'm not saying that you know look the moment i saw my the moment i saw my wife i knew she was the love of my life i knew it like you know i'm not saying it's not but the movie certainly frames as that they were together for quite a few years Again, that's a movie convention, and I understand it. And I would have made the same choice too, frankly. But yeah, in real life, they actually met. Like he was shooting a movie with it. Uh, it was spoof of my. I forgot what it's called. It was a spoof of My Dinner with Andre with a professional wrestler, and one of the extras was a woman who was the was this woman, this real life Lynn. And you know, she was involved with the making of the movie. Um, she did have participation in it. They, she did have a say, apparently, because you know someone's playing her. She has to write sign off on all this stuff on her end, but Courtney Love is fine. Um, doesn't stand out like she did uh, two years prior, three years prior in the people versus Larry Flint. But I think that was her first acting role. Or it might not have been her first, but it was an early one. So there was a feeling of, you know, two years after the death of Kurt Cobain, everyone felt she was riding on his coattails. Can this girl do it? What is, what is Mio Foreman doing? And then she's like spectacular in that movie. Um, you know, she's fine. You know, everyone else is fine. I think the only other person who I would probably elevate to beyond fine status is Paul Giamatti. Yeah, I was about I, to I, mention him. And as a kid, I was like, I think the guy playing Muda is great. Like, he's really good. And you can easily see these two guys being foils with one another. I like the stuff with them being pals. When he says, when he, the scene where he confessed that he has cancer, it's funny because, like, Zamuda's immediately laughing, going, okay, yeah, we can go with this. We can make this work. This is great. Like, immediately, the way his mind works. Like, I bought all that stuff. Yeah, I, I did, too. And this was when Paul Giamatti was very much uh, very much a that guy. This was way before Sideways and or Lady in the Water or whatever movies he had the lead role in. This was when he was popping up in things like The Negotiator and My Best Friend's Wedding for a scene, things like that. So this was, I think, a stepping stone for him as well. He was still Pig Mom. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um but i think he he that relationship that friendship i think really is probably one of the most successful parts of the movie especially in relation to tony clifton and that introduction scene for bob zamuda in the in the club where he's in i loved all of that that is funny as hell i laughed at my mom and i watched it when it first came out on home video we laughed our asses off at it then i laughed at it now it was so fucking funny and what sells it the most is George Shapiro's reaction. He's laughing because it's like one of ease, like, oh my God, thank God this poor guy was in on it. And the other's like, wait, is this for real? Like, he doesn't, it's nervous laughter. It's a combination. It's a really great moment on Diego's part. It's probably Danny DeVito's best moment in the movie. And, and he, and that's kind of the, his relationship with Andy in general. I mean, and when they have dinner, <clears throat> the first time when he when he's uh, he thinks he's from Lithuania and he, he takes him out to dinner when he drops the accent obviously the foreign man routine and and he has like the little right. thing of like snot that he keeps moving from that he moves from one nostril to the other just kind of testing George Shapiro I guess to see how he's going right. to react that's where he says the line you're insane but you might also be brilliant which is 
basically. Which is the trailer trailer Oscar moment that that definitely made me roll my eyes, you know? Oh, yeah. You're insane. Camera camera pans in as you look through the camera. But you might also be... I was like, oh, come on. (laughs) There's that line. For your consideration. (laughs) My mic just dropped. I was laughing. That was was really good, sir. Uh, The one that always annoyed me, and what does it annoy me, is during the Mighty Mouse bit, there's a girl who goes, woo! That's apparently his. That's supposed to be his aunt, his sister, grown up. Uh, okay. That annoyed, nice. That annoyed me. I was like, "Who? Who is woohooing during this? Someone did that." <laughs> Watch the real scene, and like people are laughing. But again, it's like in real life, people like they're they're laughing because they're slowly getting the joke. And once it ends, then they get the joke. But in real life, it's like you know, the first time he does it, explosion, silence, explosion, cheer, like didn't happen that way. What are you talking about? Watch the real goddamn clip. But, you know, again, exaggerated for the movie, you know, mythologize it, blow it up bigger than it, what it was. Fine. And right from his first set in the movie, when he's on stage and he's doing the foreign man and he says, he's going to do the impression of Jimmy Carter and he's using the same accent. So it's like, <laughs> eases, really eases yeah. them in and they're like, wait a minute, is this just like a foreign guy that, that, that isn't good at this? And then when he does the Elvis impression, like pitch perfect and everybody starts roaring and then goes right back to the, thank you very much. That I, I love that the whole scene. is so That's perfect. That's great. That is great. And what I wish they had done in the movie, the only slight thing I wish they'd done is in real life, apparently it got so extreme. He would, he started crying because he was bombing. Like he was like oh halfway gosh. through the act. And <laughs> yeah, he's, he's crying his eyes out. And there's these women with dates and there's these guys who are laughing their asses off and their dates are like hitting him going, if you keep laughing at that poor guy, I'm never going to see you again. <laughs> and then he goes into the hell with thing. So like, I, I mean, they didn't shoot that. I doubt it. But like to hear that version of like, actually it got even worse. Like they had, to, you know, movie eyes that like clean it up, a, not clean it up, but they had to like keep it very structured. Cause you, you know, that, God, that's so funny. His appearance on Fridays too. They really tightened that a lot. I actually looked up part of that clip. Oh and that my scene God. goes on for quite a while. In real life. Oh my God. By the way, the real Bob's movie playing the executive producer showrunner who gets into a fight. So that was probably funny. I'm sure. I'm sure they were amused by it. That that bit's really funny. And like the movie suggestion that Kaufman's like, oh, it's not really a stunt. No, in real life, it really was a prank. Everyone was in on it. Like Michael Richards knew. Which ironically enough, Michael Richards himself would ten years later get all no less than ten years later he would get super method as Kramer on Seinfeld. So you know either that was that rubbed off on him or he felt the same way as Andy Kaufman did when it came to performance art. And this film is, in a way, is very episodic because it's just focusing on Andy's different different pranks that Andy kind of goes on and how those affect his overall journey. And then, like as you mentioned, the Carnegie Hall thing is used as kind of the emotional turning point for him. In the in the same way that Bohemian Rhapsody, which you mentioned, totally takes Live Aid out of its original context. And yeah, I'm not a fan of that film either, uh, for a lot of the same reasons you mentioned. Um, what did you think about like some of the some of the other? I guess the big the big one being the wrestling uh, subplot and how how it's used in the film to to bring in uh, to bring in Lynn and and the way that that I guess builds his his divisive re, uh, relationship with his audience. It was fine. I mean, I would love to know what people really thought back in that time period, but really like just, I, I kind of wonder if maybe that helped cause 
taxi to go under like people just being so turned. He was the key to that show him and Judd Hirsch. And the people just get so turned off. They're like, I'm not watching this guy anymore. I mean, we can point to some movies not doing well or some shows bombing because people have a disinterest in the actor. You know, we just saw a Harry Potter movie not do well, which is unheard of because Johnny Depp starred in it. Now, granted, that's, there are extra components as to why Fantastic Beasts 2 underperformed. It would have underperformed with, with or without Depp, but it probably did even worse because Johnny Depp was in it. It was fine the way they handled Lynn's stuff. And no issues with it. So, yeah, yeah, it's a biopic trope. Fine. It, it's uh, you get a you get a, a look at a little bit of a different side of Andy too when he's talking to her because in in the movie it's portrayed that the whole uh, marriage thing was just an ex- excuse for Lawler to intervene and she didn't know about it, which probably wasn't the, the the case in real life. And that really kind of opens up for him being like, oh, you know, I didn't mean to. Sometimes I just get lost. That he just so focused on on uh, trying to to please his audience and come up with something original. And he's as the movie starts, he's talking to. The the, the club owner and saying about, oh, and he's telling him, Andy, it's not about art. It's about selling tickets. And, and that his Andy's trying to like um, trying to crystallize his artistic vision. And I thought I, that's as, as a creative person myself, that's the part of this character that I thought was really interesting, like his his struggle to to stay one step ahead of the audience, but to, to do his his whole uh, kind of postmodern shtick, but also. Uh, um, you know, turning them around so they're on his side when all is said and done. I think that that was an, an interesting balance that he's trying to strike. Well, they also cut they also cut stuff out of the movie where, like in real life, he did in fact like him and Zamuda did this bit where he would do his bit and the audience was loving him, and Zamuda would like like basically call him out in front of everybody to the point where saying, "Yeah, and this guy's so desperate, he paid me five hundred bucks to to ruin this set for him," and then he runs after him. They get into a fight in front of people. That's in the, like they he did that in real life. There's footage of it you can find on the internet. And by the way, it's in the movie, but they cut it out. Like it's in the trailer. That's the other thing in this movie. It's so many shots. Movie or cut scenes are in the trailer, which always annoyed me, and still kind of does to a degree. It is full of cut material, and Lord knows how how what else got cut that isn't seen the light of day. And his his relationship with ABC was he with his special. And he wants to mess with the vertical lines, which they didn't really. That that seemed also kind of like an aside that didn't really go anywhere. I just, I guess he did it, but it, that was real. But I think it did air. Like the, you know, the, the movie assertion that the it never aired. He did air. You know, Taxi was actually canceled twice, uh, and the movie suggests it was canceled once. Uh, you know, little details. You can't. You, you sort of lose dramatic effect by having two scenes where he says Andy Taxi canceled. So okay, that's fine. And then right as that as that happens, that's when he like feels the lump on his back, of course, and all of that. So, so uh, you know, it kind of leads him into just when he feels like he's starting to to figure himself out as an artist is when that whole thing happens, which is why the Carnegie Hall is such like it all kind of you know he find he figures he finds his place, I guess, is the movie statement on it. Um, I don't really know. I mean, we already mentioned the the ending. I really I loved his his whole funeral scene, the the friendly friendly world thing, and everything, and his like the really positive message that it sounds. I don't I don't I didn't know Andy Kaufman in real life, but I like to think that was always kind of the the good play the place he was coming from. I don't know if that's representative of who he was as a person or not, but I, I like that the movie at least tries to create that image of him. I think that's the thing the movie does most. Carrie does the most successful as Kaufman is that there is that sort of like child, not for lack of a better term, childlike innocence he has, childlike wonder 
that he brings to Kaufman that the real life Kaufman did have. The film rides, uh, this film's success or failure rides on Jim Carrey's shoulders, as we mentioned. The, 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 the film itself is, is, is flawed in places, but I, you know, I'm glad that you picked it and gave me a chance to go back and watch it. I hadn't seen it in, oh man, uh, probably at least maybe 20 years, 10 or, maybe, maybe I, kept see, I, I actually was also one of the first DVDs that I got too, uh, right around like in 2000 or so. So I probably seen it a little bit here and there, like since then, maybe, a, maybe a few years later, but it's, I mean, at least in the last decade or 15 years, I haven't really gone back to revisit it. And, it's uh i think it's uh, because at times it's kind of a it's kind of a frustrating watch for me because he you see him trying to do something and then it failing and then trying to you know what i mean so it's like it's 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 an interesting it's a it's a very unique take on on a uh, a biopic that the film at least attempts even if it doesn't always get there and i think that what does work about it is is, like as i was saying really does uh come from carrie and his commitment to to this character and you know the personal connection that he feels with andy kaufman yeah the truth is to quote william goldman nobody knows anything nobody really knows i've seen certain movies that have you know failed or six you know I, i my point being no one truly knows what movies will be remembered in this time period from any year. There's no telling. Right. The fact of the matter is that, you know, 1994, we had a year of Forrest Gump. And, it, it's, you know, while it, yes, is the year of Forrest Gump, yes, it's the year of The Lion King, yes, it's the year of Pulp Fiction, movie that people remember the most from 1994 is The Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. A movie that was a financial disaster that nobody saw and yet somehow became this bizarre word of mouth movie that really is the... It is our modern day. It's a wonderful life, and and with the notion of what's going on with streaming and stuff like that, might not ever happen again. Mm-hmm. But my, but no one would have called that to be the movie I remember from 1994. Also, a fantastic year at the movies. You, you can't tell, and this one's lost the shuffle of a very very great year at the movies. I would love to dig more into 1999 in the future. So. I, I, did you have any other final thoughts on on this film? I, I pretty much think we've covered a lot of it. I think we covered all of them. It's, just, it's funny just to look back at a movie from it's the same movie, you know, like the same movie that I saw when I was sixteen to the now thirty five. And like, did the movie change or did I change? Well, the movie was always that way. I probably changed. That's my feeling about the Goonies. Like, you know, I love that growing up. I don't like it now. It's not the movie's fault. I outgrew it. But my niece and nephew adore it. There's nothing wrong with people who are our age who say, I love the Goonies. I get it. I used to, too. Um, in the case of Man on the Moon, I adored it. I was obsessed with it. I grew up with I, I didn't grow up with it, but I was, I was at an adolescent at that point. Um, but I moved on. Just like, you know, as the movie that inspired my love of R.E.M. when I got into that band so religiously for the next years, I moved on with my life. I still love them, but I don't listen to them anymore. Because that's a, that's a that's a different part of my life that I moved past. I don't like the same stuff at 35 than I did when I was 16 or 17 or 18. And that's the way it should be. Yeah, I, no, I totally agree. And some of the stuff that I grew up with, I still I still love, even if only for nostalgic purposes. But it is, you know, I think that's part of that's part of the 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 fun of doing this podcast and having the chance to go revisit films that I've seen before, or you know, see films that I have maybe I'd missed over the years, and uh, you know, kind of ex- expand your 
your cultural horizons one one movie at a time. And I think, uh, so this was a, this is a good opportunity to go back and watch a movie and celebrate its 20th anniversary and, and have a little bit of a larger discussion on uh, that year in cinema. Did yes, it was. Thank you for having me. Of course. Of course. Did you, uh, did, where can people find you on social media? Oh Lord. Uh, just, you can go on Twitter, uh, at film nerd, Jamie and listen to my random, uh, pointless thoughts on films and whatever else, but mostly film. Well, you know, we'll have, we could always have another conversation. I'd love to have you back at some point. Thank you. I will come back anytime you request. Thank you, sir. <laughs> if you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little KED.